Father, indeed, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? So I pray this morning as we come under your word, that you would help us see your son. You would show us Christ. You would reveal your glory through the preaching of this word until our every heart rejoices and confesses that Christ is Lord. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. All right. Put your hand up if you celebrated Back to the Future Day last month. Okay. Put your hand up if you even know what I mean by Back to the Future Day last month. All right. I'm the only sad one, clearly. I didn't. Yeah, no one really celebrated it, did they? But uh, marked it anyway. Well, for those, don't worry if you didn't and you don't know what the, you don't have a clue what Tim is talking about. Back to the Future Day month. Let me explain. Many across the world last month, on October the 21st specifically, 2015, marked Back to the Future Day. Because that was the date in the pretty famous film, Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2, actually, that the Doc and Marty McFly traveled from 1985 in their DeLorean time machine, and they ta- traveled forward to October the 21st, 2015, which we have now already experienced in the present day. Of course, the media and Facebook, they made a big hoo-ha about it. In fact, one of the late-night shows in America, they actually got Christopher Lloyd, who plays the doc in the film, they got uh, Michael J. Fox, who plays Marty Fly, they got them to come out of retirement just for one night. And they did a little drama, uh, pretending once again they had come from 1985 in their time machine forward on the night of the show itself, October the 21st, 2015, last month. And as they arrived on the set in their time machine and they they got out and they looked around at what is now the real world in October the 21st, 2015, they pause for a moment, they look around and they frown in despair. The real 2015 is nothing like what the guys back in 1985 hoped it would be. Aside from the lack of hoverboards and self-drying jackets that you see in the film... The Doc and Marty are actually quite distressed to see that in the real October 21st, 2015, still the world is full of greed. The world is full of exploitation, still. The world is still full of man-made suffering. Uh, The world is still a world in which nations are at war, in which homes are broken, where selfishness and adultery and discord remain. I wonder if the Doc and Marty's reaction is that as they frown when they see how little things have developed in the real 2015, so different from what they had hoped for back in 1985, I wonder if their response mirrors something of our own as we pick up the newspaper, as we watch the real events in the news on TV. I mean, it's, it's not all bad, thankfully. Uh, we do see, thankfully, in, in occasions in our world, beautiful things, and we see uh, evil Uh, being brought to justice, and we're thankful for that, but it's still against the continual backdrop, isn't it, of crime and corruption and suffering, and sadly, even at times, the guilty going unpunished and justice not seeming to come. Just this past week, we saw another plane crash, didn't we? 227 men and women and children dead, and it looks very likely that it was the work of a terrorist group. 
a bomb on the plane. And whilst the authorities rightly seek to bring the culprits to justice, we know at least it's possible that they might never see justice in this life. Will our world ever change? Will justice ever be done and be seen to, done, seen to be done in every way, as the Doc and Marty hoped for back in Back to the Future too? Well, since we started this new section in Revelation in chapter 16, we've seen a resounding yes to that question. Yes, justice will come and be seen to be done in every way one day. Our world will be held to account one day when God decisively deals with all that is evil in his eyes once and for all. Uh, So far since Revelation 16, we've seen God's judgment upon our world in in very broad terms. But as we come, we're nearing the end of this section now, in Revelation 19, 11 onwards, the focus sharpens dramatically. And John is allowed to see in a vision the agent by which God will bring the nations to account. Uh, The one who is his judge, who will right every wrong in every way in the end. First we're told what he is like, and then we're told what he does, and then finally we see the verdict that this judge will bring. Let's start with the likeness of the judge. Let me just read from verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. First thing we're told about God's judge for his world, that he is described as faithful and true. And so straight away, this vision identifies the judge to come that God will send as his son, Jesus. Because that's the same way that Jesus was described at the beginning of this letter, back in Revelation 3.14. As he speaks to his church, uh, look on the screen, we read, maybe not, Okay, let me read it for you. Revelation 3.14. Okay, it's not that. Revelation 3.14. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the one through whom God will judge his world on the final day. And the reason it's Jesus and it must be Jesus is because he is the faithful and true one. He alone is worthy to take up that great task. Jesus is the one who alone reflected the goodness of God in this world as a human being in every way that we and society in general has failed. Jesus who never strayed from the will of God, who never gave into temptation to go his own way, even when being tempted by Satan himself when he was hungry. Just eat some bread. I can give you all the kingdoms of this world. Just bow your knee to me and defy God just once. And Jesus never did. He honored God and he loved his fellow neighbor in every way, even to the point of an unjust death in the cross. And yet, as the faithful and true one, it was that very cross by which Jesus and Jesus alone has defeated the power of Satan and sin and death brought wickedness to its knees. Jesus alone is qualified to be the judge of all on the final day because he alone has overcome evil in the cross. 
It has no hold on him, unlike us. It brings us into our second description in the second half of verse 11. We're told, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus is the great judge who will never turn a blind eye. He is the one who can't be swayed by popular opinion. He can't be bribed. He can't be bought on the basis of party interests. No, no, he will decide in judgment on the basis of simply what is right. Nothing less and nothing more. We're told in righteousness he will judge and make war. He will make judgment and he will carry it through. There can be cases in our world today, can't there, sadly, where a righteous judge is keen to see justice done, but he can't enforce the proper verdict because mysterious events have taken place during the case. Office fires and other convenient incidents suddenly occur that destroy all the key evidence that would incriminate the guilty. Not with Jesus. You see, his third description in verse 12. His eyes are like flames of fire. That's how Jesus was described to the church of Thyatira back in Revelation 2. And you see what he promises them as he judges evil in their midst. I think we have got this one on the screen. As he judges evil in their midst, Jesus says, the one with eyes like flames of fire, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. See, his, the flame, his eyes as flames of fire here, they represent the fact that he knows all. He is aware of all the facts, everything that takes place. Everything is revealed before his awesome penetrating gaze, even that which is in the hearts and minds of men, motive that is hidden from us. On the final day, not one case will go undecided due to lack of evidence. Jesus will be the one who has all the evidence, and he will judge on the basis of what he alone can see. Now, of course, there are other cases in our world that we'll know of where a righteous judge has even had all the evidence he needs, got a strong case to bring against a guilty party, but he is prevented from passing judgment because someone more powerful overrules him and forces him off the case. I'm sure we can bring some contemporary examples to mind. Well, not with Jesus. You see, these two next descriptions show us that he cannot be overruled as God's judge. The justice that he brings will not be undone. See that fourth description in verse 12. On his head are many diadems. Uh, Now, the diadem, there are two crowns in Revelation, uh, the diadem uh, and another one. But this particular crown, the diadem, is only worn by two other persons in Revelation that we've seen so far. There is Satan in the form of a dragon back in Revelation 12 verse 3. He has seven diadems and the beast by whom Satan leads the world astray in chapter 13 has ten of them. Uh, These diadems, they they represent the limited rulership that Satan and his beasts has been given over our world for a time to blind it and promote it in rebellion against God. That leads to so much of the suffering we see in the world. The diadem is a symbol of rulership. But here we see Jesus when he comes as God's judge with a number of diadems beyond count. Many. In other words, his rule is far above any other power in this world, Satan's, the beasts, any earthly ruler. 
There's no question Jesus will be on charge on the, in charge on the final day. No one else. And we've got this strange phrase in verse 12, haven't we? The fifth description. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's not the first time we've seen an unknown name in Revelation. Anyone with their thinking caps on? Remember where we've seen an unknown name before? Want to guess a chapter? It's all right, it was quite a while ago. In fact, for us, it was about last year, so I wouldn't be very surprised if anyone got it, very impressed. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is encouraging the church in Pergamum to remain faithful to him in the face of the severe persecution they're facing against God's people. A, a, a witness is even named there who was martyred in their midst, Antipas. And so Jesus promises this to those who remain faithful to him no matter what. Revelation 2.17, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. They receive a new name given by Jesus and only known to him. It's a sign that they truly belong to him and that no one can take them. No matter how severe the persecution they face, no one can take them out of Jesus' hands and he will deliver them. This unknown name, it's, it's a sign of belonging, of ownership. Now what does it mean then for Jesus himself, as we see in Revelation 19, what does it mean for him to have a name known only to himself that we can't know, that only he is aware of? I think it's effectively saying Jesus belongs to himself. He can't be owned by anyone. He has a hidden name that no one can know. No one can overrule him. His hidden name far above every other power. In other words, on the day that Jesus returns to judge, he will face no competition. No competition whatsoever. We see that as we're told in verse 13. In terms of his clothing, his apparel that he will bring, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Uh, Those words are actually taken straight from the Old Testament. Uh, They describe uh, God as a warrior who comes to deliver his people from his enemies. Have a look in Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Notice his garments, what he's wearing, that's what he means by apparel. In clothes, Jesus will come, as it were, with a robe dipped in blood. It's, it's another symbol showing his unquestionable victory over all who would otherwise stand against him on the final day. He wears their blood, not the other way round. His authority soars above those who vainly resist him. So we have this final description, the latter half of verse 13. He is called the word of God. And John introduced this vision to us all the way back in chapter 1 as his testimony to the word of God and to Jesus, God's son. And here we see those two are one. Jesus is the living word of God. And here the emphasis is on his authority. Jesus carries the full authority of God himself, his word, carried on his breath. And so as the living word of God, Jesus will be God's final word for our world. He will have the final say over our eternity. Not us, not our parents, 
Not even our mothers-in-law. Jesus, as the living word of God, will have the final say. Overall. Full stop. Now, isn't this the kind of judge we need for our world broken in sin, where so much injustice does take place and is not brought to account? Let's just quickly recap. Upright in every way, the one who alone is just as the judge, righteous in all his decisions, he can't be bribed, able to see all the evidence, nothing is hidden from his sight triumphant in his judgments. No one can stop him from enforcing what he decrees. He belongs to no one but himself. No one can overrule him. And he will defeat every evil. He will always have the last word. Here is God's promise. One day he will right every wrong by his son. And that day yet to come, will mean delivery and victory for those who have not only trusted on Jesus, belong to Jesus, who know him as our Lord today, but who have also suffered greatly for the sake of his name in the midst of this dark world. We see the actions of the judge. And notice in verse 14, firstly, that Jesus is not alone on the day of his judgment when he comes Read verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Jesus is going to come with a company on the final day, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We already know who these people are because John's already described a group like that just last week. Have a look in verse 8. We see the wedding supper of the Lamb and those who are invited to it. How are they described? Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Uh, Those who are in the images of Revelation riding behind Jesus, in other words, coming with him on his side, on the day of his judgment, are the saints. Us, his people, if we are trusting in Jesus as Lord today, if we are showing that the fruit of our righteous deeds and our lives, made possible by his grace, yes, but still there all the same. If Jesus is our Lord today, then friends, please know we are not facing this judgment, this time of God's wrath upon our sin, only because we've been spared it by the blood of Christ shed for us. No, instead we will be brought with him to see this judgment upon the nations that refuse him. We will stand on the sidelines and watch, but for those who do continue to resist Jesus' Lord, who who reject the rescue he offers us in his cross, well, there will be no safety or security at all. Verse 15, Jesus comes to rule. From his mouth comes a sharp sword of which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It is a sobering and horrific image, isn't it? Again, it's taken from Isaiah 63. Jesus' words will be like a sword to his enemies' throats as they stand condemned in sin, struck down by his decrees as the king comes home to rule, having to yield to his authority. It's very different from the way the world is today, isn't it? You know, many will mock Jesus' name right now or use it as a swear word casually or seek to 
more comfortably misrepresent him, pretend, oh, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. He was just a wise man. He was someone who can just help us find our way as humanity, but not the Lord, the King, who came to die for our sin that we might have the hope of life with God through faith in him. On the last day, there will be no doubt about who Jesus is. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's where the insignia of a Roman general would have been placed on the thigh and on the robe so that people knew, oh, it's that guy. And so it will be with Jesus. The nations will recognize the king they rejected as he claims his rightful place on the throne above all thrones. As I said before, the day of Jesus' judgment will be a great comfort for some, and it will be a day of great tragedy for others. For the church that this was originally written to in John's day, these would have been comforting words. Because for them, as they honored King Jesus in the pagan Roman Empire, they were the ones under the sharp swords for not worshipping an earthly ruler. They were the ones being impoverished and trampled for not offering incense in his name. And here God gives them, his people, a promise. Your suffering will be short-lived. Your mighty saviour king is coming back, and no matter what you face for his sake in this life, it'll be worth it. And friends, the sufferings of the saints, God's people, haven't ceased to this day. In case we're in any doubt about the hardship that many of our brothers and sisters face in this world, I want us to watch a little video. I hope it will fuel our thoughts and our prayers. Thank you. For the last 20 years, Open Doors has been producing the World Watch List, which ranks the top 50 countries where it is most difficult to be a Christian. This well-researched report is compiled by a group of experts audited by an outside organization specializing in religious freedom, and it is credited as the best and most authoritative report of its kind. Through on-the-ground interviews and data analysis, this list provides an accurate picture of the difficulties persecuted Christians experience around the world. The World Watch List looks at and measures the types of persecution believers experience from the government, community, and even their own families. It also looks into the restrictions Christians face in their private lives and their ability to meet and worship with other Christians. But the list is not just numbers and figures. It represents those who have decided to follow Jesus, no matter what the cost may be. In many countries, believers encounter intimidation, prison, or in some countries, even death. Persecution is a daily reality for millions of believers across the world. In 2014, Christians experienced intense persecution in a number of countries. In North Korea, which is ranked number one for 13 years in a row, it is estimated that 50 to 70,000 Christians are imprisoned for their faith. Iraq moved to number three on the list and has seen a mass exodus of Christians as a result of the Muslim extremist group, the Islamic State. It is estimated that 140,000 Christians have been displaced as a result. Nigeria's rank rose to number 10 for the first time ever. It is estimated that there have been an average of 10 people killed daily by the Islamic extremist group Boko Haram, and most are Christians. We invite you to learn more and pray 
for the millions of believers around the world where persecution is a reality. If you want more information about that list, I've actually put the hyperlink at the bottom of the outline as well. I hope we saw the point there. 50 to 70,000 North Korean Christians in labor camps for their faith, and up to mostly 10 Christians a day losing their lives for Jesus in Nigeria. And the reason why they can endure with joy and contentment in such harsh circumstances is because they know that their king is coming back. They know that whether in life or death, they are secure in him, no matter what. They know that their hardship isn't the end of the story, that they won't be in the camps and under the sword forever, that one day those who have trusted in Christ and so honored him as king will be honored by him. And those who have resisted King Jesus and so opposed his people as a result will perish. What about us here at SMAC? living in a very different situation. I mean, we might not be facing the extreme hardships of what we just saw of those featured on the watch list, but it's true, isn't it, that we can still face hostility and opposition for our faith as Christians in KL. And one of the blessings of living in this moderate society in Malaysia for us is that when facing serious hostility, we can appeal to the authorities of our lands. We can seek justice where appropriate, but that is still no guarantee that justice will be done in every situation. For our fellow brothers and sisters or ourselves, when we're mocked, harassed, scorned at college or in the workplace for believing in Jesus and sharing him with others, when we're disrespected in our own homes by our own families for refusing to join in their traditions that we know we can't if we're going to honor Jesus as Lord. We face that kind of hostility and it looks like justice is never going to come. It can be so tempting to give as good as we get, can't it? To retaliate in our own means. You know, my fellow workers, they're going to make my job hard just because I'm a Christian. I'm going to make their job hard in return. My siblings are going to pick on me for my faith. I'll pick on them in other ways. We're so tempted, aren't we, when we are opposed to fight back in dishonorable ways. I know that. I've been there. I've done that. No, we must remember that this day is coming, that it is the Lord's to avenge, and he will repay according to his perfect justice. We are not to join in the hatred of those who oppose us as Christians. Instead, we can trust Jesus will right every wrong in the end. Much like our brethren who are enduring such severe persecution in North Korea and Nigeria right now. They have no human court to appeal to in their case, but they know Jesus will return. They know they are secure in him and that he will judge perfectly on the final day. So we have the verdict of God's judge, and we're given this stark contrast in the rest of these verses In Revelation 19, you remember last week back in verses 6 to 8, we had the great marriage supper of the Lamb, such amazing celebration, this glorious banquet that awaits all who belong to Jesus, who trust in his blood and by the power of his grace, live and suffer for him now. And there's so much rejoicing in that first feast. It shouldn't be too hard for us as Malaysians to appreciate the link between happiness and food. And here we see it. They rejoice at that first feast. Because Jesus has come. It's not really about the food, it's about him. He's come to deliver. He's come to save. And finally, 
We can rejoice in him at peace in his rest. But now, in verse 17, we have a contrast, and it couldn't be greater. We have another feast, only it couldn't be more different from the first. Verse 17, an angel calls out to a swarm of circling vultures, Come gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's a horrific image again taken from Ezekiel 39, what we had in our Old Testament reading. Uh, in that vision, God had just destroyed all the enemies of his people, Israel, their hostile neighbors who had ganged up together and formed a great army against this horrible king, Gog of Magog. And Israel are defenseless at this time, and this great army are going to take advantage of them and plunder them. But God puts an end to that great army in an instant. And he tells Ezekiel in the vision, after the battle is done, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. And the only difference here in Revelation 19 where we see such a feast again is that the call to the birds to come to devour God's overthrown enemies is made before he's even overthrown them. We haven't even got to the battle yet. And already the birds are being called to devour those who stand against God's king on the day of his judgment. They're already as good as dead. And in verse 19, the day of judgment arrives. The beast through whom Satan promoted the world in sin, he he gets armed up, he prepares for battle, he gathers for war against God's king, along with all the world under his sway, sold into sin and delighting in wickedness. Are they prepared to fight? Only once again, there is no fight. There's no mention of fighting at all. Remember when Paul Barker came, he was teaching us from Revelation 16, and we saw there as well, we were getting ready for this immense battle between God and all the forces of evil. And again here, there was no war, and there's no war here. No fierce battle. The enemies of God, they turn up on the battle lines, and straight away, verse 20, the beast is captured along with the false prophet who led the world astray. Verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. To use the words of H.G. Wells, who wrote The War of the Worlds, this is not a war any more than there is a war between men and maggots. There's no contest. The birds call to devour before the battle has even begun. The absence of any actual fighting by the beast and the world under his sway. It just emphasizes the simple but awesome warning. All who stand against God and his king in Jesus will perish without question in sin. Don't stand a chance. Their days are numbered. The verdict's already been given. So as we face up to these sobering verses, we need to ask ourselves this morning, which great supper of Revelation 19 will I be invited to? Oh, the wedding supper of the Lamb, rejoicing with Jesus as our Savior King, or the great supper of God's judgment? Facing the inevitable wrath of Jesus as our judge for sin. 
He will right every wrong this world has ever known on the final day. Justice will come. But that means justice has to come to my doorstep and your doorstep as well as every other. And friends, the message of God's word is that none of us are innocent in and of ourselves. His all-perceiving eyes, eyes like flames of fire, see us for who we really are, see me for who I really am. All my shameful deeds, most of which are so easy to hide at times from all of you, but can never be hidden from him. Every selfish decision, every lustful look, every lie, every envy, I know I can't stand on my own merits before a holy God and live on that day. No, I need to. We need to rely on someone outside of ourselves to have hope. The one who alone is faithful and true. The righteous one. The one who lived the life that I failed, that we failed to live before God. And then died the death we deserve for it in his cross. So that we might escape. So that we might go free. That we might be part of the wedding feast rather than the funeral supper of the world. Jesus will judge by the sword of his mouth. Well, by what he's spoken, listen to him in John three thirty six. then. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you trusted in his blood to cover your every sin and so bowed the knee to him as God's king? For us, as the risen Lord who promises eternal life in the place of judgment, if not, please do. Don't leave this room until your sins are forgiven. Friends, this day is coming. That's why God has given us this word, because he doesn't want to see anyone face this judgment. And nothing in the world is worth it, meeting Jesus as our judge rather than the one who died to save us. And for those of us who do know Jesus, who can take comfort that no matter what we endure for his sake in this life, in tomorrow, to who know it's worth it, he, he will right every wrong, every injustice in the end. Well, our priority is to let this future day of judgment weigh on our hearts so that we are eager to make it known to others before it's too late. I went on a mission trip to Nepal a few years ago with uh, Andrew's father, who I refer to and know as Uncle Edward. And I was very encouraged by his witness as soon as we arrived in Kathmandu. Uh, The minute we got into a taxi that was going to take us away from Kathmandu Airport, uh, Uncle Edward, he struck up a conversation with the driver, and within two minutes, never met this guy before, but in two minutes he was talking to him about Jesus. He asked the guy, have you ever heard about Jesus? Do you want to hear more about Jesus? His claims are amazing. Let me tell you about him. Uncle Edward knew this day is coming, and so his priority was to share the good news of Jesus' rescue to all who would be willing to hear, to all who would be willing to hear, before it's too late. Who could we bring to Smack One next Sunday who would benefit from hearing the gospel? Who who could we bring to the guest night next month to hear the true meaning of Christmas? The great news of sins forgiven in Christ, born to us that first Christmas morning. Who could we warn in love this coming week at work? So that those for whom Christ died will be prepared for this day 
when he returns in his glory to save and judge the nations. The splendor of the king, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, but trembles at his voice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a heavy word. It is a sobering image that you have presented to us and you presented to John in this word this morning. And I pray, Lord, uh, for those of us who are yet to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, you would help us to think oh so carefully to reflect on these words and by your grace to bow the knee to him as the Savior in whom we have the promise of eternal life, the King who is returning to rule, that we would have life in his name on that day. And I pray for us who in your mercy and grace have already received that great salvation, that you would put such a zeal in our hearts in the light of your gospel, in the light of these words, to be making the most of every opportunity that you give to us to share the news of salvation in Christ with others. Help us to be ever mindful this day is coming. Help us not to despair when we face injustice as your people, but help us rather to be looking for that every opportunity to share the good news of Christ even with our enemies before the King returns. We ask these things in his name. Amen.